Now, why a series like this? The upper right-hand corner of your note says, Get a Life. That's the title of the series, Personal Management for Personal Ministry. Why do we do a series like this? Well, I'm convinced that many people want to serve the Lord in effective and productive ways, but our lives are not in order such that we're able to do that. And so we come to church and we hear guys like me talk about what Scripture says with regard to our responsibilities to serve the Lord, to use the gifts and abilities and the talents that he's given us for his ends, for his mission. We hear that. That resonates with us if we're believers. We want to do that. But the truth is we can't. Uh, Or we can't do it to the tune that we would like to or that we should be able to. And part of the reason that we can't is because our lives are not ordered. Our personal lives are not managed in such a way that it leaves margin, that it leaves the the time necessary to put into sacrificial ministry in the Lord's work. I'm convinced that most of you sitting here, the vast majority of you want to do that, but many of you can't do it because of this personal management issue. So that's why I call the subtitle of this series Personal management for personal ministry. That's why we're doing a series. Now, I have to say in passing that there are probably some in here as well, a minority, thankfully, but probably some in here who don't want. Um, You know, we exempt ourselves from serving the Lord, being involved actively in his work, using our gifts and abilities and talents and all of that. Uh, And let's be honest about it. We do exempt ourselves. You know, that's for other people. As for me, I've got kids and a job. So people who don't have kids and don't have a job can serve Jesus. Well, the problem is just about everybody here has kids and has a job. Even if the job is inside the home, it's a job. I've seen that job. I don't want it. And my point to you is, if you fit into that minority category, give that up. Stop exempting yourself with a mentality that says that's what other people do. And so when you hear me announce things like opportunities for you to serve, you, you, blow, you blow past that. Some of you do that. Not many, but some of you just blow past it. That's not for me. That's for those guys. I've got kids and I've got a job. And I'm telling you, everybody's got kids, everybody's got a job. The Lord wants us to manage our lives in such a way that we serve him with the gifts, abilities, and talents and experiences that he's provided for us. Now, it is true that all of us are in phases. We're all in particular circumstances. And as I said at our special family meetings that we had over the last couple of months, most of you were able to attend those. I said, look, many of us are not able to do everything we want to do. Just because of our our phase in life, there may be illness issues going on, there may be job issues going on, there may be all kinds of things. I may have, you know, we've got, we have people in our church who have five kids under the age of seven. If you have that many little kids, you're going to be limited as to anything else you're able to do other than concentrate on rearing those kids right now. And that's as it should be. And so we all have those kinds of phases, and you may be in a, in a phase like that. But you will emerge from that phase, and you need to even now be thinking about how you can order your life in a way to most effectively serve the Lord. The truth is all of us can serve somehow, and most of us can serve in a greater way. And my assumption in a series like this is that all of us want to serve the Lord to the maximum extent that we are able. So we are in a series like this trying to help you 
intentionally order your life around the mission that the Lord has given us. Now, use the words carefully. Intentionally organize your life around the mission that the Lord has given us. And the key word in that is intentionally. That is, I consciously, I purposely arrange the components of my life around the mission. As I said in the introductory lesson in this series a few weeks ago, if you were here, I don't, we don't float through life. But I purposely, I consciously, intentionally order my life in such a way that I'm not just drifting from one thing to the next in an unintentional manner. Now, to live intentionally means, among other things, that I can't use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for why I don't order my life this way. Now, what do I mean by using the sovereignty of God as an excuse? Well, sovereignty means God has full authority, full control over his, over his world. Everything that happens in God's world happens because God is in control of it. If God didn't allow it to happen, it wouldn't happen. That's how sovereign God is over his world. The Bible teaches that. Not a, not a leaf falls from a tree. A sparrow does not fall to the ground, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 30. A bird doesn't die except it be by the will of your father. And he says, and connected with that, even the hairs on your head are numbered. So every time you run the comb through and there's there's more hair, that's all by the decree of a sovereign God. So God sweats the small stuff, and his sovereignty is such that he controls everything that that happens. But can you see how that can be used as an excuse for complacency on our part? Because we will then conclude, and some do, that because God is sovereign then, whatever role I play, whether I play that intentionally or not, it's all good. Romans 8.28 does say, after all, God works all things together for, anybody know, right? God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Or you've got Ephesians 1 and verse 11 that says that God works out all, th- all things work by the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so we, if we don't, if we don't think about it properly, we paraphrase those this way. Romans 8.28 becomes, whatever I happen to be doing is good, since it all works out. So I don't have to intentionally, consciously, purposely do stuff, because it all works out. Or we paraphrase 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether I eat, drink, or whatever I happen to be doing. Just do it without stealing. Do it without sinning. Do it loving Jesus. And it's all, it's all good. And the sovereignty of God is not designed to be an excuse. Now hear this. It's not designed to be an excuse for us to fail to live on purpose and to live intentionally. It's not designed for that. Why does God have verses throughout Scripture like Romans 8.28? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Why? It's to comfort us when we are victimized by circumstances beyond our control. That's why God gives us those. It's not to say, oh, cool. 
whatever I decide to do, even if I haven't ordered my life according to God's mission, whatever I decide to do, it all works out for good, and that's a beautiful thing, and I don't have to worry about taking classes like Get a Life. So if you and I do not live lives that are intentionally, purposely, consciously ordered around God's purpose, here's what it means. It means a lot of things, but it means, among many things, that I could have regrets. It's possible to have regrets. And there's a sense in which it's proper to have regrets about what I should have done about how I should have ordered my life, about how I should be ordering my life. Now, when I say have regrets, that's taboo in our culture. What do you mean regrets? I mean, in the words of that great theologian, John Bon Jovi, there isn't one of these lines that I would erase. You know, every experience I've had, it's all been the experience I should have had. Really? I mean, is everything you've done the thing you were supposed to have done? Of course not. That's not true for any of us. Now, has a sovereign God still worked through it? Absolutely. Thanks be to God. But that doesn't mean it's all good and everything that I've done is good. And when I look back, I need to ask myself, and as I look at myself in the mirror now, am I consciously, intentionally, purposely ordering my life around God's purpose? But in our culture, it's, hey, I got these lines. They're well-earned. I wouldn't erase any of them. If you're Sinatra, you did it your way. I was... uh, the other day, listening to uh, Garrison Keillor. Some of you know who Garrison Keillor is, a prairie home companion. And he was reading a poem. He likes to read poetry every now and then. He was reading a poem by a guy named uh, Raymond Carver. This poem is uh, it was titled At Least. And when he said the guy's name, I had bad flashbacks. Because when I was in college, we had to read Raymond Carver. And I just have to tell you that, you know, in the words of some other great theologians, when I went to college, the things that pass for knowledge, I can't understand. We had to read Raymond Carver and his, frankly, stupid poems. But this poem says, in part, you know, I want to get up one morning at least, and go to my place with some coffee and wait. Just wait to see what's going to happen. That's how it ends. That's profound. And Keeler adds at the end of it, if I had to live again, would I do it the same way? And his answer is yes. Get my cup of coffee, go and see what's going to happen that morning, and just watch life pass me by. And would I do it the same way? Hey, all of these lines, I wouldn't erase any of them. No regrets. I did it my way. Socrates said this, though. He said, rightly, the unexamined life is not worth living. Our lives are to be examined. We're to examine what we've done. We're to examine what we're doing. And to ask ourselves, am I consciously, intentionally, purposely ordering my life around God's purposes? Now, you say, man, that's not a very uplifting message. 
regrets, looking back on the mistakes I've made, the trajectory of my, of my life. But hear this, there's hope with this. We need to be honest about the past, but we should not live in the past. What the Bible teaches is be honest about the past. We don't say that it was all good because it hasn't all been good. It hasn't all been good for any of us. It's not all good. But you know what Paul says? He deals with it honestly. He talks about what happened in his life, the stuff he did when he persecuted the church, when he was running from Christ, when he was disobedient. But then he, he deals with it honestly, but he doesn't live in the past. And so he says in Philippians chapter 3, Now, forgetting what is behind, I strive toward the goal. And so, friends, I'm encouraging you, unlike our culture, to be honest about the past, not live in it, and here's great hope. It's not how we start. It's how we finish. And a gracious God has brought you to this place at this time to think about these extremely important matters. How do I order my life in a way that brings honor and glory to him in the mission to which he has called each of us? Now, what's that mission? Well, last week, Zach did the teaching in my absence, and I was told he did a very good job with that. And if you were able to to be here for that, then on pages 12 to 23, I think, he covered what the mission is. It's a lot of material. It's written out for you in those pages. If you don't remember it or if you weren't here for it, it's not only written out in those pages, but it is recorded on our website as well as all of our sermons and, and lessons are. So I encourage you to, to listen to that. But what is it in a nutshell? It's to bring glory to God by participating sacrificially in the advance of his church. Bring glory to God by participating sacrificially in the advance of his church. We call it the Great Commission, but his church is at the center of it, as, as Zach pointed out last week. Now with that then, today we're going to begin looking at the seven habits, seven habits of highly effective servants, beginning on page 24. Today we're going to look at the first three of those, and the next week we'll look at the last four, and we'll be finished with our, our series. So on page 24 at the top, genuine believers desire to please God with their lives. And most have heard sermons and admonitions to order our lives for maximum effect in the Lord's work. They desire to respond with positive change. But these commitments remain as mere good intentions very often because of a lack of a plan for implementation. Many Christians' lives are so crowded with the good, there's little left for the best. That's a, that's a good sentence, if I do say so myself. Our lives are so crowded with good stuff, we don't have time left over for what's best. And you see, it's important to see that very often it's good stuff that crowds out the best stuff. Most of the things you're involved in that take all of your time and your energy are not evil things. I'm going to make that assumption. I know many of you. I think I'm on safe ground. They're not sinful things. And so they're good things if done in moderation and if done in order to achieve something larger. But very often they're done as ends in themselves. It's just one thrill to the next thrill. What's next? Good things, but they crowd out the best things. My and your ability to most effectively participate in the Lord's mission. 
This material then, last sentence of that first paragraph, is designed to assist believers in reordering their thinking and in turn then their behavior so to as allow prioritization of God's purposes. It's a variation of a book that was a bestseller for many years, many years ago. You see in that second paragraph, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You say, so here we are at church and you're giving us a distilled version of some Mormon, by the way, he's a Mormon, some Mormon dude's book. So how does that work? But I explain that in the next sentence. The concepts are an example of God's common grace in that they convey general truths that can be profitably applied by anyone. However, like all non-Christian books, the best he can do is make suggestions. And so it's not just taking what he says, but it's the concept that he has, which is a good one, but filtering it through what God says. And so the seven habits are completely renamed in order to fit the mission that God has given us. And here they are. Be purpose-driven. Keep your eye on the prize. Prioritize the important. And then we'll look at the other final four next week. With that, take a look at page 25, if you will. Some of you know the answer at the end of this, but don't blurt it out until we get there, if you do. But I am your constant companion. I'm your greatest helper or your heaviest burden. I'll push you onward or drag you down to failure. I'm completely at your command. Half the things you do, you might just as well turn over to me, and I'll be able to do them quickly and correctly. Who am I? I'm easily managed, and you must, you must merely be firm with me. Show me exactly how you want something done, and after a few lessons, I'll do it automatically. I'm the servant of all great individuals, and alas, all failures as well. Those who are great, I made great. Those who are failures, I made failures. Who am I? I'm not a machine, though I work with all the precision of a machine, plus the intelligence of a human. You may run me for a profit or run me for ruin. It makes no difference to me. Who am I? Take me. Train me. Be firm with me, and I will place the world at your feet. Be easy with me, and I will destroy you. Who am I? And I am habit. It is the habit, the habits that I train myself to be involved in. And they have that kind of power over each of us. I am habit, and that's why it's the seven habits of highly effective servants. And the first of those seven habits is this, to be purpose-driven. Now, we start with this habit. This is habit number one for this reason, because everything flows from here. Everything else flows from purpose. Friend, if we don't get purpose right, if we don't firmly cement in our minds why God has placed us here, why he has left us here, it is not, as some of you have heard me say before, you know, we're just living life as one big Bill Knapps. Right? Remember Bill Knapps? That's where all the old people went, plus me and my family. (laughs) And they used to call it God's waiting room. And for many of us, life is just one big fat Bill Knapps. Just God's waiting room. Just going through life, floating through life. No particular goal in mind, no particular mission in mind, not ordering my life around that mission. Just going through life. Raymond Carver says, just see what's going to happen. 
But everything flows from purpose, and we are to be, indeed, purpose-driven people. If we are purpose-driven, driven by the purpose that God has given us, it will affect our thinking, it will affect the way we talk, it will affect the way we behave. And so purpose-driven thinking. And I'll give you some quotes here on page 25 about how, if we are purpose-driven, it will affect our attitudes, the way we think. I know this now. Every man gives his life for what he believes. Every woman gives her life for what she believes. Sometimes people believe in little or nothing, and so they give their lives to little or nothing. Wow. Let me just stop there for a second. But isn't that a sad moniker for a Christian? Do we believe in little or nothing? We believe in big stuff, don't we? We believe in world-conquering kinds of stuff. We believe in life-transforming kinds of stuff. But so many of us grope around in life as if we believe little or nothing because, in fact, that's what we concentrate on. Little stuff that ultimately does not matter. Insignificant things. And so we give our lives to little or nothing. One life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it, and then it's gone. But to surrender who you are and to live without belief is more terrible than dying, even more terrible than dying young. Abraham Lincoln said, people are just about as happy as they make up their mind to be. It's the power of attitude and of thinking. Charles Swindoll, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, circumstances, failures, successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that's our attitude. And I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. There's a profound difference in outlook between those who are driven by their God-given purpose and those who are simply driven. And you see in parentheses I have there, driven by what? Driven by circumstances, by other people. So there's people who are driven by their God-given purpose, and then there are people who are just driven by what happens. That phrase, God-given purpose, is extremely important. Because you can read books all the time that tell you you need to have a purpose and you need to pursue it, but just pick your purpose. (laughs) But of course, Christians don't just pick their purpose. God gives it to you, right? So it's your God-given purpose. And you're to be driven. I'm to be driven by that. Not driven by the circumstances. Not driven by other people. And there's a profound difference in the way we see all of life between those two sets of people, those driven by their God-given purpose and those who are just driven by things and by people. And so on page 26, you have people who are just driven, and then you have people who are driven by God's purpose. And you might write, if you care to write anything at the top of both those columns, you know, the purpose who is just driven, the the one person who is just driven, is somebody who is a victim. Life happens to them. They're a victim. Life happens to them. But somebody who is purpose-driven, God's purpose-driven, 
is somebody who is a player, not a victim. And they happen to life. You see the difference? It's not just life happens to me. It's not just I wait to see what's going to happen and then I react. But rather, I'm actively playing. I'm actively moving in the direction of my purpose. I'm not a victim. I'm a player. And as a player, I happen to life rather than life just happening to me. People who are driven by the circumstances, victimized, easily offended. Blame others. It's not my fault. I couldn't. Because he, because she, because my boss, because... Get angry then, right? I mean, look at the hand I was dealt. That's such a lousy hand that I was given. Nobody wants to say that God gave me, but that's the implication. So I'm not just angry, I'm ultimately angry at who? At the one who gave me that hand. I wallow in self-pity. Oh, I could have been all kinds of things. <laughs> you, you just don't know the talents I have. If I had just been given the opportunity to flourish, and if this hadn't gotten in my way and that gotten in my way, the victim, life happens to them. But then there is the player. They happen to life. People who are driven by God's purpose. Not easily offended. Why? Because people don't control them. You know, they don't have this codependency, this unhealthy codependency on people. So they're not easily offended. They take responsibility for their choices because they know that I've been giving a, given a purpose and I need to pursue that purpose and I need to make choices in line with that purpose. If I do that well, I've taken proper responsibility. If I don't, then that's a failure. And because it's not just any purpose, but it's God's, it's a God-given purpose, when there are bumps in that road, when there are obstacles, I can thank God in those trials. Because I know none of this happened by chance. That I'm on the road that God has called me to, and my job is to, as we will see more directly in just a bit, my job is to run that race in the direction and in the manner toward the goal that he has given me. And so what do they do? We focus not on what we can't change, but what we can. So there's purpose-driven thinking. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you talk as well. Friends, our words expose our thoughts. They expose our hearts. Jesus said, I have it for you there, Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you guys, some of you have heard me say before, you know, when stuff comes out of your mouth and you go, oh, that just slipped. Well, that's better. You called me an idiot, but it just slipped. I feel better. The fact that all the while you're thinking I'm an idiot is supposed to make me... And the truth is, you called me an idiot because you're thinking I'm an idiot. Because the way we talk comes out of the overflow of our heart. Or when we, when we swear. You know, I just say, well, what are you going to do? Everybody swears. I mean, you know, you hit, your, you hit your thumb with a hammer. There's only one thing to do, swear. Well, that's absolutely untrue. If you're not habituated to that, that kind of thinking... But if you are, indeed, it will come out. But it's your heart, understand, that's speaking. And when somebody hits their, just as an aside, when somebody hits their thumb with a hammer, whose name do they use in vain? It's Jesus, right? 
I'm not even going to say it because I don't do that. It's never Buddha. I just like one time somebody just go, wow, Buddha. You know? It's one proof that Jesus is God, by the way. Purpose-driven thinking, purpose-driven speaking. This purpose-driven speaking, driven people just say, well, I'll try, but, you know, I'm a victim and I don't know what's going to get in the way. Or that's just the way I am because of the hand I've been dealt. What can I do about it? I have to. I can't. You ruined my day. You see the differences. Purpose-driven doing. Responsibility can be thought of as a compound of two words, response and ability. You have responsibility because you have the ability to respond. And so you are not just dragged around by the circumstances. You're made in the image of God with the opportunity to make choices within the framework of the circumstances that a sovereign God places you. And so I'm responsible because I have the ability to respond. We each have the ability to choose what we'll do and how we'll do it and therefore are responsible for those choices. Unfortunately, the choices we make are often not the best. Notice sometimes they're good, but they're not the best. And we're so crowded with the good that we don't have time for the best. Instead of being consciously based on pursuit of our purpose, they're based on something else, which by definition is less important. It's a mouthful, but am I right? Anything less than my purpose is by definition less important. And the extremes that result are run around or lay around. Here's the run around dilemma. Because we don't know what's really important, everything seems important. Because everything seems important, we do everything. Other people see us doing everything, so they expect us to do everything. And doing everything keeps us so busy, we don't have time to think about what's really important. That's one person on one extreme. Then you got the lay-around person, the lay-around dilemma. Because we don't know what's really important, nothing seems important. Nothing seems important, we do nothing. People see us doing nothing, they expect us to do nothing. Doing nothing keeps us so busy. <laughs> we don't have time to think about what's really important. And, you know, to just see people doing this, I mean, it's one thing, it's fine. To see Christians do this, my goodness. To miss your God-given purpose in life and to pursue it actively. And so, top of page 27, Eleanor Smith said, It has long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. And down at the bottom there, Philippians 3, Paul said, One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I strain toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. The first habit is to be driven by God's purpose. But secondly, it's to then keep your eye on the prize. We've looked at the effects, both positive and negative, of having a God-purpose-driven perspective. It's, uh, you might insert the word God there because that's important. It's not just any purpose. It's God's given purpose. An outlook that sees all our relationships and our circumstances as means to achieving our God-given purpose of glorifying God in His mission through maturing obedience to His Word in every role of life. That's going to result in radically different thinking and talking and doing. And in addition, our understanding of our purpose will affect how we order our days then. Because it will determine, now get this, what's important and what's not. How can you possibly know what's important to do and what's not important to do if it's not measured against whether or not it advances my purpose? And so if we don't know that, we can easily be distracted by 
lesser things. And so instead of being driven by our purpose, we're driven to distraction. In fact, I want to write a book. I want to write a bunch of books. But I want to write a book with the title, Driven by Distraction. Not driven to distraction, driven by distraction. Because the person who's not driven by purpose will then be driven by whatever's going on around them. They'll be driven by distractions all the time. Luke 10, you have this story in the life of Jesus. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Here is Mary sitting at the Lord's feet. Does she know what's important? It's Jesus. But Martha is distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. You've heard me say, you're in big trouble. Jesus says your name twice, you've done something wrong. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, how did she choose what's better? Because she knew what purpose was about. And thus was not distracted by lesser things. The American Heritage Dictionary defines distracted as suffering conflicted emotions. Distraught. When we fail to focus on our purpose, we're easily distracted. Our perspective becomes distorted. Emotions churn. Anxiety builds. Martha's not alone. Every one of us is well acquainted with distraction and worry. When we fail to focus on God's purpose and our circumstances as merely means to that end, we start worrying. And worrying is a serious affront to God. Now hear this. Though believers who are committed to and are all in for the mission will still sometimes be tempted to worry. The truth is there is a calmness and a serenity about those people that has amazed me as I've watched them, as I try to be one of them. They're not distracted by the circumstances. Philippians 4 is an example of that. Philippians 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 6, do not be anxious, that is, do not worry about anything. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then further down in the chapter, Paul, who wrote that, says, I've learned what it is to be in plenty and to be in want. I've learned what it is to be well-fed. I've learned what it is to be hungry. But in all of that, I've learned to be, I'm quoting, content in any and every situation. A calmness and a serenity in whatever circumstance, contentment, because why? The guy who wrote chapter 3, I'm straining ahead toward the purpose. There's a calmness and a serenity even when the circumstances are adverse. And when he wrote that, you all remember where he was. He's chained to a Roman guard. (laughs) Okay, I'm chained to a Roman guard. Rejoice. And he's writing a letter to people to encourage them. He doesn't need encouragement. He needs to encourage them. You guys are all worried about me because I'm chained to a Roman guard. You need to understand. The gospel is not bound, chapter 1. And the gospel is my purpose. 
And as long as I'm achieving my purpose, I'm good. I don't like being here, but hey, if this is what the Lord has for me, He's going to work this out, and the gospel is not chained. As a matter of fact, this poor guard and all the people who replace him on their shifts have to listen to me, give them the gospel. They're the ones who are chained, poor guys. Is that a radically different perspective? And so, in our personal mission statement that we gave you on pages 2 through 11, and that we suggested that you create one of these for yourself, in all of the examples that we gave, we said, look, this is how you need to view the various roles that you have in life as a God-given, as, as a partner with a God-given spouse as a, an employee of a God-given employer, as a member of a God-given family, as a member of a God-given church. You guys remember that? Every one of those started with God-given. Now here's why that's so important, because Paul can be in jail and he can be okay with it because he knows he's pursuing his God-given purpose. And as long as I'm pursuing my God-given purpose, I can keep my eye on the prize no matter the adversity of the circumstances. So habit number two is to keep your eye on the prize. And then thirdly, well, let me give you... Let me give you one just really important phrase before we go to habit three. This, These three words, if you really live by them, I don't say this lightly. I don't know if I've ever said what I'm going to say to you. These three words will change your life. TV evangelists say this stuff all the time. If you buy my book, it will change your life. But these three words are that important. Faithfulness is success. Success in your life is being faithful to the purpose to which God has called us. It may look like failure to everybody else. You're in jail. Nobody likes you. Everybody's abandoned you. You're a big fat failure from the world standpoint, right? But from God's standpoint, you're an absolute success because you've been faithful to the God-given purpose that He's given. Faithfulness is success. And so no matter what happens, if I get laid up in the hospital, if people in my family reject me, if people in my church reject me, if people at work reject whatever people do, whatever circumstances come my way, if I have been faithful to my God-given purpose, I am successful. Faithfulness is success. Habit three. Page 28, prioritizing the important. And there is this constant struggle between these two things, the urgent and the important. And here's the thing about stuff that's urgent. Or, or, or excuse me, let's start with important. Things that are important are not always urgent. In fact, usually they're not urgent. And because they're not urgent, you can say, I don't have to do it. So reading the Bible is really important, but it's not urgent. Working on your ministry, whatever ministry you have taken on to sacrificially do in advancing God's work through His church, His mission, that takes time for you to plan that, to be ready for it. But it's not urgent because I'm not doing it till Sunday. 
It's important, but it's not urgent. And because it's not urgent, I don't feel compelled to do it right now. Meanwhile, allowing other things that are urgent but not important to come in. And so, things that are urgent but not important, what are those? They're distractions. They're interruptions. Things like, am I on? Are we still here? Okay. Things like the phone ringing. Things like the dude on TV that says, shouting at you, order now, while supplies last. I gotta get that. Th- I gotta get that thing that slices those potatoes the way that thing slices it. Because if I order in the next 15 minutes, I'm gonna get a set of knives to go with it. So I'm dropping everything to give them my credit card so I can order this thing because it's urgent. But is it important? Of course not. Now listen, nobody has the right to intrude, especially adults. Nobody has the right to intrude. That dude shouting on the TV, here's what he has the right to, the power button. You are off. You are gone. When you're in your car, the person on the commercials does not have the right to intrude. Either keep the radio off, turn on NPR that doesn't have commercials, or at least mute the commercials when they come on. Because you always got people shouting at you. And they're trying to interrupt you to tell you how urgent something is. And all of the junk is unimportant. They artificially make it urgent, but it's not important. Now, I say especially adults. Children don't know that they don't have the right to do that. They need to be taught. And so they will sometimes interrupt. Now, we're almost done. We have to be. We're out of time. But on pages 29 and 30, there's this matrix with regard to defeating the tyranny of the urgent. And we'll conclude by me explaining that matrix in just a second. But I want to give you an important passage that I can't leave without providing for you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. And here's why I bring it up. We've got many things that we need to do that may be important. If you've committed to the Lord's work to take your place in the Lord's work to advance His mission like every one of us should... If you've done that, then you've got planning to do for that. You've got a sacrifice of time to put in that. But since it doesn't happen until Sunday or it doesn't happen until once a month, I don't have to do it right now. And it's easy for you to put it off. Now, why would you put it off? Or to put it another way, what determines when I have to do it, when it becomes really important? And here's the answer for many of us. When somebody's going to find out. I just know it's got to be done by Sunday. Because that's the day I'm going to stand up and teach. And if it's not done by then, people are going to know what a bozo I am. And that's a bad thing because I don't want people to think I'm a bozo. So, you know, when we get close to Sunday, I better get the thing done. But why wasn't it important on Monday? Or Tuesday? Or Wednesday? Because the urgency, get this, the urgency is supplied by other people and what they think. Rather than the urgency being supplied by God and what He thinks about how I'm using His resource of the time that He's given me. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you 
and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And it's the Lord Christ that gives what we do, should give what we do, its importance, but at the same time, doing it well and ahead of time and using my time to move toward it, it gives it its urgency as well. It means other stuff then of necessity has to be blocked out. With that, pages 29 and 30 have this chart that says, look, things that are... Page 29, both important and urgent. You see box one there? You got things that are urgent and they're important. My child fell and broke her leg. This is urgent and it's important that I get her to the hospital. Okay, stuff like that, emergencies, crises, things like that. But then I've got things that are important but they're not urgent. You know, preparing for my ministry and setting aside time to do that, sacrificing time to do that. That's important, but it's not urgent because it's not happening until next week or next month, so I can put it off. And that's what we do very often, unfortunately. Then you've got the bottom there. You've got things that are not important, but they seem urgent. This is ordering your Jinsu knives. They're not important, but they look they're urgent. You've been deceived by that, by this dude on TV. And the stuff that's not urgent and it's not important... This is the stuff where we're just wasting time. We're just, we're just out doing stuff that doesn't matter and we don't have to do. Now look on the next page and you've got boxes that explain those. Crises in the one. The bottom, not important and urgent. Needless interruptions, unnecessary reports, unimportant meetings and so on. Other people's minor issues. But down at the bottom, not urgent, not important. Time wasters, escape activities, excessive TV, all of that. Here's the box you really want to, the, the top right box. Things that are important and not urgent. That's where you want to concentrate your life. They're important, but they're not screaming at you to say, I've got to be done now. And habit says, I'm going to discipline myself because not what other people think, but because what God thinks. And I have this God-given responsibility in his mission, and I am going to, even though it's not due tomorrow, it's not due till next week, it's not due till next month, it's in the Lord's mission, I'm going to sacrifice and realign my life in order to see that happen and prepare for it. Box number two, living out of box number two, is one of the habits that all of us need to develop. All right, thanks for your indulgence. I went three minutes over. Let's ask the Lord to help us this week. I'll ask the Lord to help me as you all leave so you don't say unkind things to me or hit me or any of that for going three minutes over. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend looking at these extremely important matters. And Lord, it is a matter of of urgency for us that we take these seriously and we begin to make changes in our lives to reorder our lives around what is eternally important. And so, Lord, I pray that the things that we've looked at today will will motivate us to do that, to reevaluate how we are pursuing our lives. Many of us are pursuing them, Lord, in a distracted fashion, driven by the circumstances, driven by other people in an aimless sort of way. 
Help us to develop the disciplines, the habits that will move us regularly, daily, weekly, monthly in the direction that you've called us as we take our place in the mission that you've given to your people. So, Lord, help us to pray about that this week. Think about that this week. Get get counsel about that this week. Talk to our spouses about it this week and begin to reorder our lives around your purposes. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, Lord, in life to grope around about what we should be doing, but giving us the light of your word, telling us why you have us here, what your purpose is, that you've gifted each of us to then use the talents and abilities and the time and the treasure that all belong to you to move forward your purpose. Help us to begin doing that this very week to bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.